Metal Lunatics, this is John Gallagher from Raven, and you are listening to Focus on Metal! Hey, Metalheads, Scott here. I'm Richie. Yeah, once again, uh, separated by miles, brought together by Skype, and uh, bringing you another episode of Focus on Metal. And now uh, this week, it's actually a pretty cool interview that uh, Richie was able to hook up with Michael Alago, the uh, legendary A&R guy. Pretty much every metalhead knows he's the guy that signed uh, Metallica to Electra Records at that famous Roseland Ballroom show. Yeah, Richie's had a pretty lengthy talk with him in we're bringing that to you this week. Yeah, Michael was very good. Um, I read the book. It's a pretty easy read. It's it's not all about music. Mm. It's uh, he's led a a very very interesting life. Yeah. Um, he's uh, it's one of these books after you read. It's like Glenn Hughes's book. How the fuck is he still alive? <laughs> um, because he tried everything and drank everything and snorted everything, and he, he was a bit of a bit of a tear away when he was younger <laughs> to say the least but uh, there, there is a lot of music stuff in it as well um, and I more or less spent the whole interview just talking about that yeah. because that's really what everyone wants to hear about yeah. um, but it wasn't all Metallica I did touch on some of the other bands that he signed to Elektra and uh I asked him about some of the other bands that were on the label. Uh, did he have a hand in signing them? And uh, he, you know, he gave answers on all of that. But um, yeah, he was he's doing a lot of press. I think he's been on some other shows um, promoting the book. The book is good. It's, it's a good book. Yeah, he's an interesting guy because you know it's it's obviously I, I cut it all out of the interview, but uh, he was definitely uh, you know. Ask ask you like a lot of you know kind of upfront questions, and he wanted to get squared away on things. And uh, I don't, you know, I've yeah, you always have artists occasionally who'll ask you a few things, and it's usually stuff like you know, is this going to be text, or is this going to be audio, or or when's it going to air, or things like that. But he was he was almost like had this laundry list of of stuff that he was asking you. It was like wow, like that's uh, yeah. <laughs> it was it was kind yeah, of interesting. Yeah. He asked me some stuff, and uh, I'd never been asked by anybody. Yeah. Over 90% of the guys, either you call them or they call you. Mm-hmm. And you might spend a, a, a minute chit-chatting, and then you might have a certain time to do it. And boom, you get into it, and then they hang up, or you hang up on them, and then there's someone else waiting to do exactly the same thing. Yeah. So they don't even ask you anything, really. And, and Michael asked, uh, he asked. He asked a few things I'd never been asked before, and he was texting me uh-huh. afterwards, saying, "You know, did you get everything you needed? Was everything okay on my end?" And you know, which is really nice to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything was fine. Um, but all of these guys, once you're done, you're done. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I said it was that was interesting because I'm editing it up, and it just really threw me off. Of like. Oh, okay. No, he's still going. Oh, no, he's still going. And I was like, wow. Like, <laughs> he's almost getting ready to, you know, 
ask you for your social security number before he starts ask, answering questions. It was it was kind of interesting, but uh, but over you know all in all, great interview and yeah, very interesting guy and you know looking forward to reading the book because obviously I saw the uh, the the Netflix or what, Amazon Netflix. I guess on Netflix there, um, you know who the fuck is that guy? Uh, it's really good, is it? It is. It. it is good. Yeah, it was. Uh, I watched it. God, I want to say maybe October, November, or something. It was just kind of one of one of those shitty weekends, and I I, I turned that on, and it's it, it's really good. Yeah, uh, a lot of interviews with people, and uh, you know, pretty pretty well liked and and respected, you know, overall in the industry as well. So uh, yeah, if you get a chance, check it out. It's it's good. Um, did you see the documentary on the rainbow? I did, as a matter of fact. Yeah, I, I watched that a couple weekends ago. I I wish it was longer. It was it got it was it was thought it was really interesting. But it it seemed like they skimmed definitely. over some things that I really was interested in. They had some great guests on it. Oh yeah, they did definitely. And, and Steve Riley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you look at Steve Riley and you think, you know, you you think that that was like the you know the they they found him like under a chair in that Hollywood vampires room. He'd been left there for twenty years and they forgot about him. And it's like, oh yeah, Steve Riley. But uh, yeah, uh, it's, uh, yeah. There was some of the some of the big guys in the eighties. You know, some guys like Motley Crue or Rash or, or you know some of the bigger bands. Um, it would have been interesting to have them on because you know having Ozzy and Slash and Gene Simmons and all. You know, hmm. they're more like seventies. Um, I know. I know there were Kiss and them and Ozzy were big in the eighties, but. You would have had the young, up and coming eighties acts. Uh, it would have been younger than those guys, and it would have been interesting to get their take on the on the rainbow uh, and that scene. But uh, it only really had Steve Riley in it. Yeah, I think too that they might have stayed away from that a little bit because um, I think the eighties was they probably didn't want to talk a lot about the about the scene at that point in the eighties either. That uh, it was probably just more. Uh, just kind of more like trying to emulate what happened in the seventies where the seventies or the sixties, it was kind of like they were just doing whatever the heck they want. They weren't trying to emulate anybody. Mm-hmm. Did you ever go to the rainbow? No. Um, when I was out in LA, uh, we got there, it was late Saturday. We had the stuff at the palladium to do. And then Sunday it was like the strip was just, was dead. And, uh, so yeah, I never, I never made it in there. The the chances are I probably walked past it mm. a couple of times. I was in LA for four days in the end of the nineties, mm. and um, I didn't give it any, didn't give it a second thought because uh, to me that that the eighties music that I loved all that was dead. So I, I didn't, you know, go looking for places that you know that these acts used to play in or, or might hang around now because. The late nineties, all these bands were, you know, they were gone, yeah. really, for more or less. Um, I thought LA was a shithole, personally. I didn't <laughs> like it, but uh, you know, I, I, re- I was in San Francisco before that, and I loved that. And then I went to LA, and I was like, Ugh, I just want to get out of here. But uh, yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. It was uh, just the I, you know, I guess partly because I'm just like a freaking East Coast guy. And, uh, it's kind of like, you know, when you go back to, and you think about, uh, about Alex Skolnick book and, and how 
he never felt right on the on the West Coast. But then when he moved over here to New York, then he was like, oh, all right. Now I, I, now I feel all right. I feel like, I, like I'm normal. And it's kind of like I have that. And I think I talked to Alex a little about, about this, too. It's the same thing as when I was out in L.A. It was like I just couldn't wait to get back here because everything was just too laid back. And, and it was just like, it just like ah, I just don't freaking belong here. And, uh, yeah, I just it, it was just a whole different, whole different attitude. And it was even weird. Uh, I went into the, uh, the Alvarez store and, um, you know, looking at guitars and stuff. And the guy was like, Oh, so where are you from? And I was like, Oh, you know, I'm from Boston and stuff. Oh man. He's like, you guys have like this killer scene out there, man. I'm thinking, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) Like, like, really? Are you kidding me? Like (laughs) not not even like close. And, uh, it was like, you know, what exactly have you been smoking, buddy? To, to think that we've got some amazing scene back in Boston where, like, and nothing of the sort. But, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, I often wonder with all these musicians that I interview, a lot of them are still in LA. Uh-huh. And sometimes I wonder why, because you don't really need to be there now with technology. Um, I know some of them moved to Vegas, some of them moved to Arizona. Some of them moved to Nashville. Um, but a lot of them seem to be still there. Maybe it's because their families are there with their kids and, and uh, they just like it there. Maybe it's the weather. I, I don't know. But, yeah, uh, it's probably like the weather. And then you get the other stuff too where, because I mean, you think about it, you talk to a lot of musicians and you talk about uh, like different, you know, different jams and things that happen. And so you, and kind of the same thing with the, with the Vegas guys too, right? You get jams that happen in that area too. So I think some of it oh, is that, and there's probably is still that, that connection of, of like, well, you know, the, the industry itself is still there and you kind of need to be where the industry is. So I, some of these guys probably just stay there for that too. But California is not a cheap place to live. Nah, no, it is not. That is, that is definitely true. But then again, <laughs> it's, it's not cheap where we're living either, but not as expensive as no, California. True. I would agree. True. True. So how do we get how do we get on this rabbit hole? I, I don't Michael know. Michael Alago to L.A. That's good. I, I, mean, I told this, me. Is, this is old school focus on metal where we're like, <laughs> we're, yeah, exactly this. What the hell rabbit hole do we just go down? But uh, yeah, whatever. It's discussion and, and fuck it. We're just that's what yeah. it is. Man. Before I leave you go, um, what do you think of the New Testament album? Actually, I really like it. I I like the um, you know they were playing um, one of the singles. I think I want to say almost a month and a half ago on Sirius. And, uh, I really liked it the first time I heard it. And, uh, I, I just think that they, they're, they're on a roll. I think, you know, brotherhood was really good. This one's really good. And I, I don't know how they, how they keep doing it, but, uh, they seem like they're in a, they're in a good space for writing music. And I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's just me thinking, you know, it's, it's now the, the kind of the, Alex is back and, uh, you know, for the last couple albums and the circle's complete again or what, but, uh, yeah, I just, I just really like the stuff they've been doing. Yeah. This, this album, I prefer to Brotherhood of the Snake. I think it's got, it's got more hooks in it. Um, I, I think the thing sounds amazing. I think that the mix that Andy Sneed did on it was fantastic. Um, Gene Holden's drumming is incredible. Like that's a given. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what it is with 
these like second tier from the big four, like Overkill, Death Angel, Testament. Their new music is absolutely phenomenal from all of them. And I don't know what it is they're drinking or <laughs> eating or smoking, but they're just they're just on a roll, all of them. You know what I think part of it is, is that is a lot of those second tier guys, they're still hungry. You know, you 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 see kind of like the rehearsal facility that, that Testament works in and it's you know, it's it's not palatial. It's a, it's pretty much just slightly better than the rehearsal facilities that I had back in the eighties. You know, that's they're 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 I think they're still hungry. They still enjoy they still enjoy doing it and they haven't had that unfortunately haven't had that measure of success that, that makes them comfortable, but on but for us as metal fans, it's worked out that they still keep able to churn out you know, album after album of great music. Yeah, and they don't. Ha- I don't think they'd have to do it. Um, they could go out and, as a package, you know, with other bands like they all they, they always do, and just play the hits. And they might bring out an album every five or six years, maybe even longer. And um, you know, they'd still do good business, but. You know, Overkill every two years, Death Angel every two years, Testament or maybe every three or four years. But you know, the Testament have brought out four records now since they reformed, and they're all phenomenal. Yeah, I, I think they're just driven to to make new music. I just and you think about it, you know, the the stuff that uh, they're also doing. Where you know, you see Chuck Billy, he's guesting on Metal Allegiance and things like that. And um, I, I just think that they just really like what they're doing, and and. Uh, I think it's you know it's pretty much all they're doing too. So, uh, although it's amazing that Alex is able to fit in everything he does and still churn out you know great Testament albums at the same time, but hey, I'm glad he does. Oh, but when you look at the writing credits, it's mostly Eric and uh, Eric that writes the music. I think Alex has I think two core two writing credits on this one, and I think he had maybe one on the last one. Mm. But it, I mean, it's, it's more Eric's band. When it comes to the music, yeah, but I mean, when you look at credits, it could be that you know Eric wrote the hooks and all of that stuff, and then Alex comes in and he's writing solos, and I bet he has some contributions here and there. Just like I'm sure that you know, uh, you know, Steve could throw something in or whatever. They're just not getting the you know, you don't get a writing credit for doing that. So it's, I'm sure that he still has a a, a lot of stuff and you know a lot of involvement and stuff as well. But you also don't want to bring like the total Alex level into it either, because you don't want to kind of have this overly schooled thrash album. But uh, I, I still think he's got a voice in there. Yeah, I think they've got a great balance now mm. with their their older sound and their newer sound. Yeah, um, I think in a lot in a lot of ways, I think the new stuff sounds like the old stuff, just recorded and sounding better with mm. technology. Yeah, um, and Chuck still sounds great as a singer. Um, I just think the album is really, really good. It's going to be up there as for one of my albums of the year, definitely. Yeah, I mean Chuck is like he's the miracle man. People, people forget. I mean, the guy almost died, and and look at yeah. him. He's still like you know, he's like larger than life now. So it's 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 amazing. Yeah. 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 And that and that might be that might be a driver too, right? Is that is that you get someone who's kind of stared death down, and uh, you know he probably is a little bit more driven than some other people that haven't had to deal with that. So there's that chunk there too. 
Yeah, that definitely. I think that definitely comes into it. Mm. Um, but yeah, he still sounds phenomenal. He does absolutely. Um, and the great thing I like, the great thing I like about this record, I, I'm not a fan of when he does the guttural stuff. I'm not, I'm not a guttural fan anyway. Like that album they did with Demonic in the mid '90s um, is probably my least favorite Testament record because of the way he sings on it. Yeah. Um, I just like I just like the way he sings now. Mm. Um, it's like old school, you know, Testament. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. So what do you say that um, now that we've been talking Testament, let's, what do you say we play our Michael Alago interview? Yeah. All right. How do we get that on <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But Michael, get us out of this one. Yeah, that's better. Oh, yeah. It was, it was like listening to a scratchy record. Uh, you've done enough of that over the years. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Michael. First question I have to ask is, uh, how has the press been going so far for the book? Well, you know, the press has been going really good. I have been doing at least three phoners a day. You know, it's very strange right now with the coronavirus and everybody is in their self-quarantine. But almost, I don't even know how to say this correctly, if there's a good thing about the book coming out is now is that everybody has been ordering it on Amazon. So it's been easy for people to get, whether it's a hard copy or the Kindle copy. So at first I panicked and then I thought, you know, whatever will be, will be. But I get such extraordinary responses from people every day. Like I think yesterday I made a post and I read a little chapter from the Metallica part in the book and I got over 1300 people writing saying, you know what, I got to pick this book up. It, it sounds amazing. So, so far so good. Thanks. It's only been out a week mm. officially. Yeah. Michael, do you think, if the if you hadn't have done the documentary that you mightn't have done the book that the interest in the documentary really mm-hmm. pushed the book to get done. Sure, sure. Um, you know, um, the movie, the documentary, Who the Fuck Is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago. Uh, it's, I feel so grateful because it's done so well on Netflix for like two years now that they renewed us again. And the beauty in that is we also now, for the last few months, have also been on Amazon Prime Video. Now, the book happened because the people at Backbeat Books uh, saw the film, loved it, and they wanted to know if I had more stories. And I was like, more stories? Of course I have more stories. You know, I've lived in like a long life, and I did A&R for 25 years. So it uh, it almost became like a, a companion piece. And, uh, but I go a little deeper in the book than I could in the movie because, you know, we, we made the movie and it's about 80 minutes long and you talk about the highs and the lows. And, but in the book, I got a little deeper with lots of stuff growing up in Brooklyn, addiction, recovery, Metallica, my mom, uh, being sober. Um, so it all went like a little deeper and I got to put about 85 pictures in the book, a wide variety of pictures. Um, so I think before I go off on a tangent, I answered your question. Mm. Michael, do you think that being a recovering addict and talk, yeah. talking to strangers, that it was a lot easier to actually do the book and, and talk to people like me now? Because I don't know you at all. I only know yeah. you from reading the book. But you yeah. sat down at meetings and gone face to face with these people and bared your soul. Did that make it a lot easier to write this? Well, um, 
I think when one is an addict and one is in recovery, it makes a lot of things easier. My brain is very clear in these days. I show up for things when I say I'm going to show up for things. Uh, you know, uh, in recovery, you know, you be, one becomes a truly responsible person so that people rely on you. Um, now, what was your question again? I totally like spaced out. No, it's it, is it a lot? Was it easier to write the book because you'd spent many yeah. years standing in a room talking to strangers? Right. Um, well, I, like I said, I think the only reason it was easier is because I am sober. You know, all those years, I forgot that I had kept journals my whole life. So I found these two big brown boxes of archival stuff, and I had my journals in there. And in the early days, when I was a teenager, you know, the list, it was all just a list of things, like took the train from Brooklyn to Manhattan, went to three nights of the Damned and the Dead Boys at CBGB. So for years, it was just lists until it became like poetry or creative writing. And um, so those uh, journals helped because I have a bit of a scatterbrain. I don't remember half of my life. And those things, those uh, entries really helped me remember stuff. So it, it became easy only because I had the journal. I had a co-writer that um, I just kind of spit everything out. She transcribed it, and it went back and forth a bunch until we really finessed the material and that it really came out like my voice. Mm. Michael, tell me about picking Laura to co-write. Like, what, what attracted you to her to, her to write the book? Oh, sure. Um, I, let's see. We both have the same agent, Lee Sobel. Um, and uh, I knew Laura from like 30 years ago, but then she went on to have her own life and I went on to have my own life. Uh, I didn't really start searching for people because once we met again in these last three years, there was just a really nice connection. And I thought that she understood where I was coming from. And I wasn't looking to just write a book about heavy metal or just music. I figure if I'm going to write a book, it has to span the, the entire journey. Hmm. So um, it was just kind of simple picking her in the end. Yeah. Did you have to contact people because you remembered something and then you, you went said to yourself, hang on a minute, is that the way it really happened? So you had to reach out to someone to, to say, is, is this the way it went down? I did that many a time. Yes, I did. But between the friends that I called to say, was it you that I went to that strip club one night to see Kitten Matividad and Kane Roberts? Just like, yes, it was me, and you were nuts. Uh, so, I mean, <laughs> that, that, that question, that, that little scenario didn't make the book, but it just so happened that I was on the phone with him, and we just started talking about all these fun good times we had in the 90s when I was making his record Saints and Sinners for Geffen Records. Hmm. Now, let's get into the A&R field because this, mm -hmm. this fascinates me. Um, I've always wanted to know how an A&R guy builds up trust in the very, very beginning because he hasn't really signed anyone for the label. And like, how many strikes do you get before you're out in, at, at that job? Well, let's see if I'm answering this correctly. I, you know, I did my job at a, mostly at a very young age. 
you know, I started when I was, I think, 21 or 22. Most of the artists were the same age. I think when there's an artist that you want to sign, you better know what you're talking about in regards to the material that they send you so that once you know you want to sign him or her or the group, um, they recognize that you know all about what their stuff, what the material is all about. And, you know, in doing that job, I have to then, once I sign somebody, I then am finding a producer. Uh, we're finding a studio. I'm making sure that the 10 or the 12 songs on the album are very powerful and that when the record, well, making the record, that the record is going to take you on some kind of a journey so that in the end, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to the material, mm. to, to the record. Um, so I think you build up trust with an artist from a very early point in the, you know, in the career. Mm. But what about trust with the owner of the label? Um, well, oh, okay, well, having trust with, when you say the owner, the owner is Time Warner. I don't deal with Time Warner. I deal with the chairman of the company, Bob Krasnow. Hmm. You know, Bob Krasnow hired me because in talking to him in my first and second interviews, he knew that I knew a lot about music, all kinds of music, from the Great American Songbook way back in the day to what was going on in the underground mostly music, hard rock and metal scene, to contemporary radio stuff, Top 40. Uh, so Bob hired me because his A&R department was either going to sink or swim. Simple as that. That he was hoping he made the right decision in hiring me. When he hired me, I still didn't know what A&R meant. So I had to ask a couple of friends of mine in the business, and they, they laughed in my face. And they were like, it means artists and repertoire. So very soon, in my early part of my career, I really knew that A&R is the most important department of a record label. If you do not have great artists and great songs and make great records, then you're not going to give the publicity department, the marketing department, the promotion department, all the tools that they need to help market and promote a record. And, you know, I, when, when I said to you earlier that he wanted his A&R department to either sink or swim, I was going to swim. And I did that for 25 years. <laughs> Michael, when you went to see a band, yes. were you looking for uh, an up-and-coming band that might start a new trend, like some Metallica? Were, were you ever sent out to say this band is big, I want to get a band that's exactly like that. Um, were you given those parameters at all? or, or did No, you I was allowed to do whatever I wanted. And like I said, I was always hoping that I made the right decision. When I went to go see young bands, I would listen to, obviously, to the material, what the songs were like, what they were singing about. Did they have any kind of charisma on the stage? What were they doing up there? Were they relating to the audience? Was the audience relating to them? Um, all that is very important because if that's not occurring at a concert, then it's probably a complete bore. 
or the people are not great, they're good. And uh, like I said, or maybe I didn't say, you know, I only look to sign great. If you thought about signing good artists, you'd be head over your head in, you know, in in cassettes and, and independent vinyl. You just can't sign good. You'd mm. be great. Mm. Now, Michael, you mentioned the importance. Yes, you mentioned the importance of an audience there, and the interaction between the audience and the band you're going to see. Yes. But I've spoken to many musicians, and they did a lot of showcase gigs in empty rooms with A and R people. Did, did you end up doing those at all? Oh, of course. You know, because uh, up and coming artists who maybe did not have uh, an audience yet. Uh, I may have heard about them through their manager or lawyer, and it was my job to, you know, if I respected the, the, the manager or the lawyer who was asking me to come to SIR, rehearsal studio, I went. And yes, sometimes there were five A&R people there, their wives, their girlfriends, you know, the manager, the lawyer, the publisher, and that was it, you know? Um, but still, even in a room where people are, it's not your audience, you're being judged. You know, it's the same thing. Either you're great or you're not. Either you know how to present yourself on stage or you don't. Um, Do your songs have any kind of universal appeal so that the masses might relate to what you're singing about? There's all sorts of things that go into thinking about signing a new artist. Mm. Were you friendly with the A&R people from other labels or, or was it a cutthroat business? Uh, well, not about cutthroat, but of course, you know, I, I, we all saw each other because a lot of the times all the A&R people were at the same gigs. Um, but, you know, you never told people who you were really uh, excited about because, you know, that that's personal, it's private, it's, you know, they, I don't want the, the act to get stolen from right under me. So it was, uh, you know, it was, you saw the A&R people but it was a bit guarded, the relationships. Mm. Did, you, did, did you ever say you didn't like a band and secretly you did, but you didn't want to let on that you liked them? No, I don't know. I don't, I don't really, I don't think I operated like that. Because mm. I've heard stories of, of guys that, that did that. Ah, okay. Mm. No, that wasn't me. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> so how, how did you deal with egos? Um. When the bands blow up, you're their A&R guy. Um, they get the world handed to them. They're, in, they're the same age as you. They're very young. Um, that must have been a huge part of your job, being able to handle them and bringing them back down to earth if possible. Sure. Um, there is a thing called healthy ego. Confidence. Being sure of yourself. I don't really recall whether it was John Lydon from Public Image Limited or all of Metallica that had egos that were problematic. These people had, like I call, healthy egos. They were confident in who they were and what they were doing. And overall, it just makes the the entire production go much more smoothly. Mm. So I don't think I, I ever dealt with people whose egos were so over the top that I never wanted to work with them. Mm. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> did, um, did you feel in the 80s that you kind of had to party with the bands for, for them to, 
with, with them so that you'd feel like one of the guys and they might trust right. you more. Sure. Well, I never felt like I had to, but it, remember, it is the 1980s. Yeah. Uh, we're all in our 20s. I particularly, I'm out almost every night hearing music, so I love drinking and, and carrying on with people. And I think, I think sometimes, you know, the, the alcohol loosens people up, and um, sometimes you form wonderful relationships from those crazy drunken evenings. Hmm. Now, Michael, how did you end up being the metal guy? Because reading your book, you had a, you had a lot of influences, but mm-hmm. you ended up being the guy at the label who signed the metal bands. Sure. Um, growing up, I loved all kinds of music. I listened to AM radio. AM radio in the 70s and 80s wasn't heavily formatted like it was today. Um, I remember at a very early age, I was watching these television shows like Don Kirshner's Midnight Special and Dick Clark's American Bandstand. They had a wide variety of artists on there, from a Grand Funk to an Alice Cooper. I loved those sounds. Uh, Then come the mid to late 70s, punk rock, the Dead Boys, the Plasmatics. I loved, I always just loved stuff that was heavy. Heavy, I related to. It did something to my brain, something to my ears that excited me. So it was almost natural progression that when I started um, at Elektra in 1983, I knew my focus was just going to be hard rock and metal. Mm. Now, Metallica... When you yep. saw, when you signed them, I've read Johnny Z's book, mm-hmm. and I've interviewed him, mm-hmm. and I asked him about you, you turning up at the show with Bob and and all that, and he still seemed pretty curt about it. He wouldn't really talk about it with me. He seemed pretty pissed off in the book. Now you mentioned in your book you knew they were under contract, and you still went after them. Was well, okay, but uh, yes, I did. And I hope I didn't interrupt you just now, but let's just talk about that. It's 1983, perhaps. And John is in the early days of his having his label, Megaforce. Mm. He knew about me as a young A&R person. We soon became colleagues. He played me, he sent me a box of records. And I remember in that box was Kill 'em All. And I thought, oh, my God, I've never heard anything like this in my life on record. Now, I had seen Metallica uh, twice before. When I was working at the Ritz, I saw them in 1982 at Lemoore in Brooklyn because it was only seven blocks from my house. And then I saw them when I was making a, a business trip to the West Coast. I saw them at the Stone. Live, they were out of this world. So then I get the record, and I thought, wow. I, I love these people. When I saw them in 83 at the Stone, I gave Lars my business card, and I just went about my business, and they went about their business. So at some point, John and I got together, and John uh, wanted me to work with Raven. So I said, um, he, I would give you $5,000 and come back with five of your best songs, and we could discuss whether I want to sign them to Electro or not. He came back with very, very strong material. But the, like I said, the problem was I heard Kill 'em All and I knew I had to have these people in my life. I knew as an independent label, John didn't have the funds to take them to the next level. Me, I worked now for Time Warner. I worked for a corporation. I could do that. So 
When Lars called me in the beginning of 84, they were coming to Roseland to play for a Megaforce night with Raven and Anthrax. I said, he wanted to know if I was still interested. I said, absolutely. So what wound up happening was they played. I lost my mind in a drunken haze again. I went backstage. I chatted them up. And I said, you know what? You all just have to be on Electra. They came to my office the next day. I tell this story all the time. They came to the conference room. We had beer and Chinese food. I gave them cassettes of the Doors and the Stooges and the MC5 and vinyl. And I felt like they never left. Now, John was not happy with me at all. But you know what? In the end, their business affairs people talked to our business affairs people, a, a financially rewarding deal was struck so that they walked away financially happy. And sometimes it's just about money and money talks. Now, it, for me, it wasn't about money. It was about the music. because mm. I really did feel that they were going to be huge. Did, and, my and my instincts were correct. Michael, did that happen? more often in the music business than we know that bands would be under contract and other A&R labels would go in and, and try and sign them. Well, I think, I think every, I, I, I'm, I'm just paraphrasing. I'm just guessing. Um, I'm guessing that if independent bands, if, if, if younger bands were on an independent label and that label couldn't take them to the next step, then it was part of my job. If I loved somebody to let the label know that, uh, you know, we really would love to, to have them. And like I said, in the end, money talks. So if that little independent label couldn't take the artist to the next level, maybe they got, they got money and perhaps they got points on the next one or two albums that the major company released. Mm. Now, Michael, you, you knew Cliff Burton um, pretty well, right? <laughs> Well, no, I wouldn't say pretty well. I knew Cliff Burton because um, I signed Metallica when uh, in 84, in 84, sorry about that. Uh, so they were mostly on the West Coast and I was on the East Coast. So I really only saw them in the early days when they were on the road. Cliff was very funny great sense of humor. I used to tease him about his elephant bell bottoms all the time. <laughs> and he would just say, Alago, go get me a six pack. And we would just laugh. You know, for me, I thought he was the most um, creative of all the musicians back then. I think he really was so seasoned at a very early age. And what a great feeling you got when you heard him play really very unique playing so i just um uh i just i, I just loved cliff i didn't have too many encounters with him mm. most of them were either at my office at electra or backstage at shows mm. and of course unfortunately he was killed in 86 yeah michael how big a hand did you have getting metallica on the aussie tour for the master of puppets album Oh, that was easy. I had almost nothing to do with it. Um, Sharon Osbourne and Ozzy heard Metallica, and uh, Sharon wanted them on the road. So I'm sure she spoke to uh, Q Prime Management. Everything got worked out, and there they went. Hmm. Now, now, you also signed Flotsam and Jetsam. Um, <laughs> yes. Now, that was after you signed Metallica. Were you looking for a another Metallica? 
No, I never look for the same thing. I just look for people who I feel are a bit unique and have a point of view and that um, could sell some records. So, you know, I think right after Metallica, the next two bands I signed were Metal Church and Flotsam and Jetsam. I love their energy. I love their songs. I saw them both live. They made an impression on me. And I just thought, I'm here to help these people get to the next step in their lives. Mm. Did, did you ever get into a bidding war with other labels when, when you tried to sign these bands? Because Metallica were starting to break then, the likes of Anthrax, all, the big four, and then you come along and you sign Flotsam and Jetsam, Metal right. Church. Um, you'll have, you're bound to have other labels that are looking for these guys and you might get in a bidding war with them. Yeah, for those two artists, there are always bidding wars going on. It's just, you know, it's just the fact of the music business. Um, but uh, I think for Metal Church and Metallica, I'm sorry, excuse me, for Metal Church and Flotsam, there were no bidding wars. You know, um, Metal Church had a young local manager named Willie. I had read about that independent record in a Seattle newspaper. I called them up. I asked for the record. I said, this is fabulous. I'm coming to see you. I went to Seattle to see them. I thought they were incredible. So I signed them. And uh, so we put out that first independent record. And then we made the second record, The Dark, with Mark Dodson. And then I believe we made Blessing in Disguise when the vocalist changed. Uh, the vocalist was then Mike Howe. Our beloved Dave Wayne passed away. Um, he was funny and extraordinary, incredible singer. Uh, so, no, for those just specific to those artists, no. You know, Jason got in touch with me from Flotsam and Jetsam. They had made one record for Brian Slagle's Metal Blade Records called Doomsday for the Deceiver. Uh, I think it was a one-off. They sent me the record. And I loved it. I go see them in, I think, Mesa, Arizona. And I, again, I thought these people had something special about them on stage. I liked the material. So I, I wind up signing them. And um, it's 86 in September, and Cliff was killed. So what happened was, uh, at some point, months later, Lars called and said, you know, we really believe we have to move forward in Cliff's honor and um, it's just what we want to do. So I said, well, you know, and I didn't know at the same time Brian Slagle was saying the same thing, which is funny and was meant to be. Um, we both recommended Jason uh, for the job. Now, I didn't want to lose him in Flotsam, but I thought this is a young person who really is an extraordinary young person. And you know what? I'm going to recommend him. So I recommended him, and Brian recommended him, and he went in for his auditions, and they fell in love with him because he was like that same brother that they lost, but not really. He was just as young as they were. He had that same energy, and of course, nobody could replace Cliff, but he just happened to work out. And he what? He was with them, I guess, the next 15 years. Mm. How did you feel about Flotsam not making it? Because I I love the No Place for Disgrace album. Um, I Terrific bought it, record. Yeah, I, I my copy's on Roadrunner because I got it in Europe. Um, oh, okay. Um, and for they had to me they had everything. They had the musicianship. They had Eric as a singer who was very different to. He's like Joey Belladonna from Anthrax. He wasn't like the growly kind of singer that was n noted for that genre. But then. Flotsam never really broke to the next level. Why do you think that never happened for them? You know, that's, 
that's hard to explain with any artist who may not become like mega. Not everybody makes it, but you know, when you care about your craft and you are dedicated to what you do, whether you become huge or not, you just keep making music because it's in your heart, it's in your soul, it's in your blood, and that's just what they do. Now, I love some of their records that they made after me. I mean, I love that Ugly Noise record. Mm. Um, I just think they're marvelous. Mike Gilbert, extraordinary guitar player. Eric is an extraordinary singer. Everybody, and you know, over the years, they had a lot of member changes, but same, they continued to have that same vibe. And um, I was attracted to that vibe and what they were singing about, and I thought they were extraordinary on stage. Um, so like I said, you know, sometimes it just doesn't happen for everybody. But if you're dedicated to your to your craft, you just keep on doing it. Michael until you until you drop dead. Until you drop dead. Michael, did you beat yourself up when bands you were pushing didn't make it, thinking, What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? What did I do no, wrong? No, I never blamed myself. Um sometimes records like I mentioned in the previous question, sometimes things just don't connect. And, you know, you do wonder why for periods of time. I don't think I beat myself up, but, you know, it is, it is very disappointing when records don't connect with the public because you just, you sign someone because you want the best for them and you want them to become mega. But, um, like I said, so many records come out all the time, every day of the week. And you just got to hope and pray. And, you know, when the moon is full and uh, then it all just works out. But it, 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 sometimes it's just unexplainable why things just don't work out. Mm. Michael, was it your job to go and tell them that they were being dropped from the label or was it someone else? Yes. Well, I think it was a combination of things. It was... Um, I would I would be the person to tell the, the artist, and our chairman uh, would be the person to speak to both their manager and lawyer about the reasons why we weren't going to be moving forward. Hmm. That must have been and very, very difficult. Hard. Yeah, it's very very difficult because you know when you spend a, a great amount of time with an artist having a good time on a personal level and on the professional level you're there and you're listening to songs you're looking for producers and you just you know want to make this great record and you're spending months and sometimes years with these people when you have to say you know the corporation uh is not making the money that they thought they were going to make with you and uh when you work for a major it's all about the bottom line for them not for me, but for them. I mean, I always got in trouble because I always stood up, stood up for the artist. But in the very end, when you work for a major, the powers that be are only concerned with the numbers. So, unfortunately, artists get let go all the time because of numbers. But these days, you know, when A&R people are going out, they want to know what the numbers are for these uh, people who are they're going to see. And it's like numbers these days the analytics or whatever it's called, don't tell you if somebody's great or not. And I always think when I hear that from other A&R people, like, it's your job to get those numbers where they should be. And if you love somebody 
and you love the art, you love the work, you just sign them anyway, because that's the job of the record company, to continue getting these people to the next step in their career. Hmm. Now, one of the bands, Michael, you mentioned in the book that you worked yeah. in is Dawkins around the Back for the Attack record. Now, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've interviewed Jeff Pilson and Mick, uh-huh. Brown, and Mick Brown, and we talked about the breakup of the band. Um, looking back on that now, because you were their A&R guy, was there anything differently you could have done to stop them breaking up? Because they were just poised, I think, to break, to go to the arena level as headliners. Right, 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 right. I was their A&R person by default. They had someone else working with them who left the company. So they were at this point in their career where they had made, you know, they were making records to WEA in Germany, I believe. And then Electra signed them to the States. When I got a hold of them, I don't know, it was 1987 maybe? Yeah. 1988. And they they were going to make a live record. And we made that live record in Japan. We, we, we taped the shows in Nagoya, Osaka, and Tokyo. And they, it came out great. The album did very well. I believe it got, um, nominated for Grammy for Best Metal Performance. Um, but after that, I really wasn't so involved with them. Uh, and I think perhaps if I really think about it, the cast of characters in that band never really gelled. It was never like they were family. And there is a case of certain people having unhealthy ego. Mm. You can't have that. That, that stuff like that breaks up families, uh, breaks up bands, it breaks up lovers, unhealthy ego. So um, that's the best that I can do in talking about Dawkins, except I will say I think George Lynch is out of this world. Mm, phenomenal. Now, there's a oh, co- totally. There's a couple of Electra Rock records that I have at home, and you didn't touch on them in the book, and I want to know that you have anything to do with these bands. Did you sign Faster Pussycat? I did not. Okay, and did you work on Trevor Rabin's Can't Look Away record? I did not. Okay. I believe, I believe that his, I think Roy Thomas Baker produced that record. Hmm. And, I, uh, and Roy uh, was our head of A&R for one minute. <laughs> <laughs> he was extravagant, fantastic, but extravagant. A little too much for the powers that be at Electra. <laughs> and you had nothing to do with Motley Crue either. I did not. Okay, okay, because they're the big bands for me that were on the Electra label. That yes, you're, that's right. I that no, I'm not they were other A and R people, and for me, you know, I like my metal dark and dirty, and and most of the time it had nothing to do with radio. It had to do with energy, and um, yeah. So any of those bands, like from the Sunset Strip and stuff, were just not my style. Mm. Michael, tell me about the bands that got away because I interviewed Tom Werman a few years ago and he named a couple of big, big bands that he wanted to sign and he wasn't allowed to sign them. Uh, Oh, he wasn't allowed to sign them. Mm -hmm. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, no, you know, people ask me that all the time, but I have to like kind of move on from that question because to be honest, I don't really remember. I just remember the, the, the wonderful things that I had the privilege to work on. So that was always my focus. Never who I lost, but who I was involved with to make the best records that I could make. 
Period. What, what about an album that you did that you thought it'd be a smash and for whatever reason it didn't it didn't break? Aye, aye, aye. Okay, there was a band from the East Village called Smashed Gladys. Did you ever hear of them? I've heard of them, yes. Okay. So <laughs> I signed them to Electra. I made this great record with them. It sounded very ACDC. I thought it was going to happen, and it didn't happen at all. Okay. And I loved them. They were great people, pleasure to work with. I love Sally Cato, the singer. And, you know, like I said, it was just one of those things, like, it, it just doesn't connect, unfortunately. Mm. And that happens a lot in the industry. Yeah. Not everybody makes it. M- Michael, I, want, I have one more yes, music please. question I want to ask you before I leave sure, you go. Sure, please. Um, did you get involved in payola at all? Not me. Okay. How rampant was it? Well, you know, I'm sure you've read about it in other people's books uh, about uh, life in the music business, mostly in the probably 70s and the 80s. I'm sure it was rampant, and it came in the, in the form of money. It came in the form of prostitutes. It, it came in the form of cocaine. Um, of course, I knew all about that, but that wasn't part of my job. The A&R person just had to... Get the, get the band signed, make those records, and then in the marketing meetings, talk to everybody at the company about the record as we were listening to it. And then, you know, everybody had to do their job. So the payola thing, although it was out there in a big way, it never touched me because that wasn't part of my uh, mindset. It wasn't part of what I needed to do to get my job done. Mm. Mm. That's good to hear, actually, because I thought everybody was at it. Not me. Okay, good. <laughs> you were you were there for the the music and the art. Well, that was it. You know, there was no reason why I would be in Paola because remember, these are young people, whoever they young people were, who wanted to be signed to a label. So their Paola was that they got a recording contract, they got an advance, they got you know what I mean. So I'm just joking a little bit about Paola there, but you know. I didn't need to do that because they were getting money because they got signed. They got advances that they could split amongst the members. We had a recording fund, whatever was left over. If there was anything left over, it would go back to the band. And um, that was my job. Michael, did you have radio? Did you have radio stations ask you for stuff because they expected it, like payola stuff? Like I said, to ask me that, I couldn't answer because no, I wasn't involved in that. Yeah. You would have to you would have to talk to marketing, uh, radio promotion people mm. about stuff like that. Okay. My job for me was one hundred percent creative. Okay, Michael, do you want to te- uh, give out all the sites where people can get get the book? Sure. Uh, the book is called. The book came out just eight days ago, March. Uh, I think March twenty fifth. 2020. It's called I Am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death. Right now, you can buy it on, uh, you can get it at bondsandnoble.com. You can get it most definitely on amazon.com. And I hope everybody goes out there and purchases the book. It's a really good read. There are 38 chapters. Some Chapters are just two and three pages. I think it flows really beautifully. And again, it's about a life. And it's about a life that's gone through so many different phases from music, addiction, recovery, health issues, thriving, and being sober and moving forward okay. in a very healthy way. Nice. Well, Michael, so I hope that people get something like that out of the book. 
Well, I really enjoyed it, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, Richie, that's so nice of you. Thank you very much. All right, take care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Okay, there you go. Richie's chat with Michael Alago. Um, Any any last words about uh, about Michael you want to uh, purvey to us, Richie, or what? Get the book and read it. Mm. And... um, you know, it's a it's a good read. I, I do I do recommend it. Mm. Um, a little bit too short for my liking. It's just over two hundred pages. Um, I would have liked a little bit more on some of the bands that he signed. Um, but if he's talking about his life, he can't really you know talk about the music for the whole book. It's it's all in it. But I would have liked some of it to be elaborated on a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would understand. I understand that. That's uh, yeah. I'd probably come to the same thing as well. But oh, but again, it's it's great, you know, that uh, he's you know given a little insight. Uh, definitely a very interesting guy. And you think about the fact of how young he was when he started in the business as well, and almost like a self-made dude working his way up. So it's a uh, it's a cool story, I think. And uh, yeah, like like Richie said, yeah, definitely go out and get the book. I know from just from watching the documentary myself that uh, very interesting guy. I can't say that I've read the book yet, but I, I definitely will. But uh, anyways, um, all right. Well, I think that is probably a wrap for uh, for this week. Yep, we are done. Done. All right. So for myself. And me, I'll put the first mask back on now. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so you guys, uh, be safe out there. Have a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next time, remember. Focus on metal. Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.